Gosh, I've been listening to that song on the radio this week, and it's not a brand new song, but man, I just was, it was hitting me in here this week. Have you ever had a song maybe that just kind of spoke to you for, for the week? And that was definitely one for me, not that I'm have anything to be really upset about or or broken over just the fact that um this is what christ does for us that he draws us to himself and um because of his goodness to us we can we can we can be sweetly broken be broken over his love and goodness to us and we're continuing in a series that we started last week called more and it's a study through the book of Philippians, which is one of my most favorite books of the New Testament by Paul. And I've read it, man, I've read it many, many, many times. And I think God is teaching me more this time as I read through it than I have, I have, I've ever learned. Um, and I'm not really sure why, but God is, is using this um, passage. He's using his word to transform me and Today, I want to walk you through a next little piece of section that um, we're in in chapter 1. I want to share with you, though, real quickly, just the verse that, in my mind, has become a theme verse for the book of Philippians. And it's verse 6, and Paul says this to the people. He says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. We talked about this last week. But that God is not done with you yet. Maybe some of you are here and you feel like uh, there is more that you need in life. There's more. There's got to be more to live for. There's got to be more to do in life. There's got to be more that you should be as a person. And I want you to know that until you die, uh, God is faithful and he will work on you until the day of completion. Um, But that it is he that has more for you. God has more for you. And, And this idea of needing more hit me this week because... I don't know if if you are a single car family. How many single car families? Do we have any single car families? More than one person. We got a couple single car families. Good stuff. And um, you can commiserate with me. I've my wife and I have been married for 13 years, and just this last year was the first time we have ever had just a single car. So we waited till we had six kids to get rid of. <laughs> two cars. I don't know why it seemed like a really not a very good plan, but we just have one big bus-like vehicle called the Suburban that moves our huge family around. And my wife is trying to convince me that we need one of those like 15 passenger vans. And I've just refused. I'm like, no, we will not ever drive a 15 passenger van. Some of you are like, yeah, well, you just wait. We might, who knows? We might have to, but depends on if God grows our family or not. But as for now, we've got we've got a family of eight. We've got eight seats in the suburban, so it's staying eight. It's kind of like a, we think of it as like the fishbowl. You know, the larger the fishbowl, the bigger the fish get. So if we keep the car as small as possible, then maybe the family won't grow. Because we know if we add some more seats in there, kids are just going to start popping up. You know, it's just, it's bound to happen. So this week, though, I was very frustrated about having one vehicle. I found myself um, kind of having my own little pity party a little bit. And uh, I have two babies who we adopted and we talked about uh, celebrated adoption Sunday last week, which was really cool. 
But we adopted two uh, younger girls, and they both this week have been really sick. And finally on Friday, my wife said, we have got to take them to the doctor. They have fevers, and there's just stuff blowing out of their nose. And, you know, I mean, we've got to just, we got to take them to the doctor. And on Friday was like big building work day. Like um, guys were doing electrical in there, and I really wanted to be there. And my wife had taken the family to our homeschool co-op thing that we do on Fridays. And she's like, the kids are too sick to be here. I got to take them to the doctor. And I'm like, but I got to, I got to do stuff too. And it was like, I have to do this. And she wants to do this for the kids. It's like, which do I do? It's like, I I need to go do what I want to do. I want to go work. And she's like, but kids are sick. Now, if you're a woman in here, you're like, the answer is simple. You take the kids to the doctor. But as a guy, you're like, well, they'll be sick, you know, they can be sick for the day. Just give them some ibuprofen. You know, like, like really, what's the doctor going to do? He's just going to say, yeah, you're sick. Here's, you know what I mean? So it's like, you know, but so, right, thank you guys for hopefully maybe you can at least. Um, but the women are like, you got to take those babies to the doctor. But for me, there was like this internal battle. Like, is it kids to the doctor? Is it I go do work and do what I want to do, you know, to kind of have the car and have my own freedom? And so I begin to uh, internally go through these thoughts. And maybe you've done this, and I'm not, I'm not saying this because I'm proud of this, but I, I complain. And I say, man, i got to have two cars. This is, this is stupid. This is ridiculous. I, I should be here, you know, laying, sending babies to the doctor when I could be working, you know. Um, I, I, I found myself complaining. I found myself going... Uh, envying over other families that have more than one vehicle. You know, I, I look at this family that just moved in across from us. I don't even, I think there's like two people that live in the house and they have like seven cars that take up like a whole cul-de-sac. I'm like, look, you, you know, you got two people, three people live in the house. You got seven cars. I got eight people, one car, you know, so I start this whole uh, maybe envy thing. Uh, but I, I can just complain to myself, and not that I complain to other people, but I can start feeling like, you know, I, you know, I, I, sh- I deserve to have a vehicle. I need, I need, I need. Uh, and then God reminded me most of, of the passage that we are, we're reading today, and the section that we're reading today. And I, I found myself, instead of instead of having joy over the situation, uh, I found myself complaining about my situation. Can you relate to that? Have you ever been in a situation where you you complained and you you thought, I should have more, I deserve more, I need more, I should be living for more? Um, I don't know if you have, but this hopefully this passage will, will speak to you. We're going to start at verse 12. Paul is, uh, of course, in prison, as we learned last week. He is in prison. He is writing a letter to the church of Philippi, a church that he planted about 52 A.D. And about 20 years after Jesus had um, been resurrected and gone back up into heaven, he started this church. And now he finds himself in prison in Rome. And he's writing a letter to these people to encourage them, even though he's in prison. Now, this guy is not just in prison, but he is literally on like a death sentence. He's awaiting trial. He's awaiting the government to figure out what they're going to do with him um, because he was doing something so terrible. 
he was talking about Jesus. And because of that, he was put in prison. And this is what he says to them. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, that means being placed into prison, has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has been become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. He's in chains for Jesus. Now, he is, uh, like I said, he's in prison. But the thing that's so crazy about his situation is he's writing to these people saying, listen, I want, I know you've heard about this terrible thing that's happened to me, but I want you to know here's the good that's happened out of it. It's not all bad. In fact, he doesn't say anything is bad. He just says, listen to what good has happened by what you think might be bad. Yes, I'm in prison, but here's what's so great. People are hearing about Jesus. You see, it's funny. They put him in jail because he was talking about Jesus. And what did he do in jail? He talked about Jesus. And he talked about Jesus to all the prisoners and the palace guards. So here's these people who are locking him up, who are like, we're going to, we want to kill you. Uh, We want to hurt you. And he says, uh, let me tell you about Jesus. (laughs) Let me tell you about the hope that I have in him. Pretty incredible. What an attitude that he has. He's going through a difficult circumstance. And he says that, but I'm so excited because people are hearing about Jesus. Not all bad. And then he says, verse 14, and because of my chains, because I'm in prison, Most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. You see, the reason why the authorities put him in prison was to bring about fear, was to scare them into stopping this whole nonsense about talking about Jesus. Well, we just put him in jail. We'll we'll put an end to this. We need to make them fearful of us that we're going to come after them. We're going to hurt them if they don't stop talking about this Jesus guy because this Jesus movement was uh, dangerous to their political uh, little regime and so their religious regime. And so he's saying, listen, it's had the opposite effect. In fact, me being in chains, me being in prison, and me being so joyful and, and positive and continuing to preach the message of Jesus has actually served to encourage people to be all the more bold, to be all the more confident, and to, be, uh, to, to preach the gospel without fear. Verse 15, he says, It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me. Well, I'm in chains. Let me uh, tell you what's basically happening. There are people who are pretending to um, love God and love Jesus, and they're out proclaiming Jesus, talking about him, just so that they could stir up more trouble and make it harder for Paul so that they could bring up their case against him to have him killed, removed, whatever. And so there are people under the name of Jesus causing him more problems causing him more problems. You know, there's always somebody who will say, I'm a Christian and cause you problems. Did you know that? Isn't that true? Isn't that always true that there will be people who should be helping you, but sometimes they call themselves Christians and they make your problems worse. That always happens. And it was uh, just the case here. You would think Paul would have a really bad attitude about his situation. Number one, he's in prison. Number two, people who are even calling themselves Christians are trying to cause more trouble for him. 
And here he is possibly facing a death sentence. And here's what he says, verse 18. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. He's happy. He says, I rejoice. I rejoice because whether they're doing it to get me in trouble or to kill me or whatever, at least people are hearing about Jesus. So as long as that's true, then it doesn't matter. And it's crazy. Crazy, crazy, crazy. Next, he continues, he says, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. He says, I am... I have this faith and I'm already rejoicing because I know you're praying for me that I'm going to be delivered. I know I'm going to be delivered from this prison. Verse 20 says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. He says, I do not want to be ashamed of Jesus and I'm going to bring him glory whether I'm alive or whether I'm dead. And this is this next section is um, probably my favorite part of the whole book of Philippians. And it's just this, you'll see, it's this really raw um, passage about him dealing with life and death. Listen, he says, verse 21, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all with with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Isn't that crazy? He's sitting here in, in this letter. He's debating life and death. He's asking the question, do I die? Do I keep on living? Now, you might be in a difficult situation, but I don't know if any of us today, maybe you're battling life and death, but I don't know that any of us are quite battling a difficult situation that he's in. We haven't quite got to the point where we're asking, do I live or do I die? But yet here we see a man who is in prison, facing death, having to make that choice, saying, do I live or do I die? Which is better? And he sees both is good. This is what's nuts. He's like, both seem great, but which do I do? I'm torn. <laughs> okay. I want you to ask yourself that question. Would you like to live today or die today? You're like, man, I'm just torn. None of you would say that, would you? You'd be like, uh, I choose life. You know, none of us would say, you know, I just think I'll die today. I'm just torn. The cho- I mean, if I die, I get to go be with Jesus. Such a good choice today. If I stay here, you know, I mean, I get to stay in prison. Mm, such a good choice today. None of us, probably none of us would, would wrestle with that decision. Man, but here we see this, this happiness in him. He's a, he's a happy prisoner. 
he's in the midst of jail and, and, and on a death sentence and he's, he's full of joy and thankfulness. Do you, do you face trials? Do you face chains? Do you face uh, stuff like this with joy? Now listen, the last time I was behind bars, it was not... Just, why do you laugh? I'm just, I was not behind bars. Um, sometimes I feel like I'm in a prison with six kids, but it's my own prison and my house. But no, I've never done prison. And listen, he had a really bad prison. There was no internet, no cable TV, no basketball court, no workout gym. I mean, it was like a real prison, you know? And uh, you know, he, he's, yeah, he has this happiness and this joy. I, I want to just show you a few things that, that I believe that allowed Paul to have this type of attitude, that allowed Paul to be in the face of death and have joy and thankfulness and meaning and purpose. And I, I think probably the first one that I, I see is, I see Paul had this, this ability to view the present in light of the eternal future. I think so often for me, and maybe this happens for you, but I only see t- today, I only see the moment. I see I'm, I'm angry now. I'm frustrated about this now. And it's hard for me to see the, the, the long-term um, effect or the long-term goal or purpose or meaning. I just kind of get caught up in the, the now and I can, I can just get irritated and frustrated and, and say, well, it's not the way I want it now. I want more now. But Paul had this ability to view his current circumstances in light of the reality that death and eternity are at the door. I mean, he's able to say, which is better for me? Do I live? Do I die? I mean, we don't think that way. At least I don't all the time. I don't always think that way of, man, I, this is nothing compared to, you know, uh, death. And I mean, this is the, the trial that I'm facing right now. It's, it's not a big deal. Because I know that one day I'm going to be with Jesus, and that's far better. I just, I don't know that I, I think that way. I had a momentary freak out a few weeks ago. And if you, if you can relate to this, I don't know. But I had this feeling of, oh my gosh, nothing is getting done at the building that we're building. And, and I, listen, and I'm, I'm confessing that this is really weird. But I was, had been all day kind of working at my house on some just regular old church stuff. And nothing had been done in the building all week. And I just had like this building anxiety that nothing was going to happen. And this fear that it's all going to fall apart. And we're not going to get enough money. And people aren't going to help. And, it's all, and we're not going to be able to move. And then like the church is going to die. And then I have to quit my job. And I have to go live with my mom and dad. And, and so it's just like it's escalating, you know. So it's, it's just escalating and escalating in my mind, you know. And so I have like this momentary freak out. And so I... So, like, I tell my wife, like, I'm going to eat dinner. No, I didn't even eat dinner. I was like, babe, I've got to go. She's like, where are you going? I was like, i got to go to the building and get some stuff done. She's like, it was like 5 o'clock. She's like, it's 5 o'clock. Like, we're getting ready to eat dinner and stuff. And I was like, I know, but I have to go. And she's like, okay, weirdo. So I literally, I left. I stopped McDonald's. I grabbed a cheeseburger. And I stayed till like, 1 o'clock painting and cleaning and just doing stuff just to work out this anxiety. And did I accomplish much? 
No, I mean, I painted a room. Woohoo! I could have done it anytime, but, but I just had like this, this freak out because of all the anxiety that had just was having of this, you know, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if. And so I had this momentary freak out because I wasn't, I wasn't seeing things for the bigger picture. I was focusing on the, the day or that week or the moment when I should have had the ability just to kind of step back and look at the bigger picture. And now that I step back and look at the bigger picture, I can go, man, that was really stupid. I stayed up really late and I freaked out over nothing. And, you know, it really was not a big deal that that room got painted. You know, I really didn't do a lot by doing that. And, and so Paul had this ability, though, to yet see his situation and cur- in, in current reality of uh, the current eternal future. And I think sometimes it's easy for us to do that when we get caught up in, in momentary troubles and trials. And one of the things that I've heard a lot is, well, we need to have an eternal perspective. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus. But I had to ask myself, well, God, how did Paul do that? I mean, how did, how did he face prison and be happy about it? I mean, how did he have an eternal perspective right there? And I, I believe it's for a couple of things. Probably number one is because I believe he's able to, um, he was a person who had this encounter with Jesus that was so real. It was so real to him, his personal faith. It was, was so real. It was such a regular, ongoing thing that it was always uh, more important than, what, than anything else that was going on. You see, Paul was a person who he, if you know much about uh, the Bible or have been to church for a while, he was a guy who was very anti-God, not anti-God, but he was anti-Jesus in the beginning. In fact, he was, um, he was catching and putting Christians into jail and having them tortured or having their businesses taken from them. I mean, he was just doing horrible things against the name of Jesus. But he had this encounter with Jesus that was very, very real. Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. He was blinded and he had this moment where where Jesus kind of sat face to face with him and said, hey, uh, what are you doing? You know, and he he began this walk in this real and current relationship with God. It wasn't just this God that he believed in that might happen sometime, someday. It wasn't just this religion that he followed. It wasn't just this idea of something bigger out there. Maybe one day when we die, we'll get there. See, if that's how you believe about God, you will always live in fear and be worried about your current circumstance. But he had this genuine, ongoing relationship with Jesus. He had a constant conversation with with the Father of, of, of heaven. And because he had this constant conversation with the Father of heaven, he had this full confidence that the only thing that mattered was Jesus. That the only thing that mattered was making his name great, was preaching his name. And that's why he could go into a prison cell, get locked up and put into chains by these guards who are roughing him up and being mean to him, and him going, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. Do we do that to people who are rude to us? Do you do that to people who are mean to you, who, who are against you, who you would say, those are my enemies? Do we say, hey, man, let me tell you about Jesus and the hope that he has for you? Well, I believe we would do that more and more if we began to have a 
personal, ongoing relationship with him. Because we, we mentioned this last week that we talked about how the gospel brings us to a place of, of fullness. The closer we get to the gospel and the closer we get to the understanding and the full knowledge of God's love for us, um, the, the less that we want, the less more we need because we're fully loved by him. And I believe that Paul was at this place where he was so satisfied in his relationship with Jesus that there was nothing else that was more important than that. And so I, when I get upset about my current situation, it's because I've placed my current realities above the priority of my relationship with my Heavenly Father. It's because I've allowed the current realities of things to be more important and to carry more weight on my life than the, than the eternal future that I have in Jesus. And so for you and I, the thing that you can do is to cultivate this daily relationship with Jesus, that he becomes the most important thing in your life. The next thing that he had, this relationship created this attitude of hope in him. You see, you hear him say in verse 20, he says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. His expectation and his hope is that not that he's going to make it out of death, not that he's going to escape death. See, our idea of getting out of situations is I want to escape the current problem. So that's the wrong view. Our hope is that we would just escape our situation. We would get that better job. We would get that marriage fixed. That child would get well. That, um, that car would get bought. You know, whatever it is that our current situation, our hope is that that situation be fixed. That was not his hope. His hope was not my situation be fixed. His hope was that I would have courage to never be ashamed of the gospel, that I would speak boldly the name of Jesus, whatever I face, whether by life or by death. See, the reason why oftentimes we don't have hope in difficult times is because we place our hope in wrong things. We place our hope in a better situation. And no one can promise us a better situation. God will not promise you a better situation. In fact, he promises you trouble. See, we hope that God would promise us better situations, that we would have more money, have that job, have a better marriage. We would overcome that addiction. But God doesn't necessarily make promises to better your situation. Instead, he makes eternal promises that he will forgive you, that he loves you, that this is not your home, that one day when you die, uh, you will continue to live and you will live either with him or without him. And so our promise is not for today. Our promise is for future stuff as well. And so he says, I ha- I, my hope is that I'm not going to be ashamed of this, of, of, of Jesus. That's where his hope is lying. His attitude is there. I spoke with a family uh, this week who called me. Uh, we, we do this thing every year called Thanksgiving Feast for All. We'll talk about it at the end of the um, service if you have never heard about that. It's a free meal to the community. We've done it. This will be our fifth year doing that. And we have a lot of hurting families that come through. and We feed a whole bunch of people, and it's, it's really fun. We had a family that came has come the last couple years, 
and I've gotten to know them a little bit and just a very difficult situation. They had their kids removed from them. They were without jobs for a while. They were living in really poor conditions. Uh, DSS removed their children from them and this over this last year, they were kind of in court battles trying to get earn money, get jobs and earn their children back. Well, they've earned their children back uh, like six months ago and now they were living in a home. The home they were living in um, was foreclosed on and they didn't even know it. They were paying rent to someone. They were living in a trailer who... The lady had foreclosed on the trailer, but they're still paying her rent. And basically, the people came to take the house from them, so they had to move out, find temporary accommodations. And um, anyway, they called me this week, and they were just desperate. They said, we have these electric bills that we are not able to pay. Um, the, the husband had lost his job again. And he's a, he's a great guy. He's a ser- servant-hearted guy. He volunteers a lot of his time. I just knew him. And you could just hear this desperation in their voice that hope had been lost. I mean, they had just had trial after trial after trial. And they had kind of just come to the end. And they're like, we just, we can't, you know, our, our electricity is being turned off today. And, um... You know, we have, we have four kids and you can, I can hear the kids run around screaming in the background and they just, just were hopeless, hopeless, hopeless. And my first thought was, is, you know, people just want money. They, they need to have Jesus, you know, <laughs> we, we don't need to give them money. They just have, need to have Jesus and have hope in him. But, um, but my, my second thought was, is how, how cool is it that we have the opportunity as a church is to bless people and love them in the name of Jesus to help them in their situation. And so we were able to, as a church, be able to pay for their electric bills this week and kind of get them, give them some hope um, for the sake of the gospel to just to remind them, you know, that, hey, our hope is not just physical stuff. Our hope is our hope is Jesus, and we want to be generous to you because we know Jesus and because we love him. And so I want to thank you as a church for being willing to give. You're always so generous in giving. Um, and so uh, the fact that we have the ability to help other families, and, of course, the Thanksgiving thing will continue to help families. Um, but the reason why we do that is we want to continue to remind people there is hope in Jesus, not hope that you're just going to have money to pay your electric bills, but that our our true hope is in Jesus. Our true hope is in Jesus. The, the other thing I feel like Paul, um, he, he had this, this mission and purpose for his life that was so much bigger than him. You hear as he speaks in this passage that you hear this constant reminder that although he's facing death, his desire is this mission that he's on, this purpose that he's in. You see, he has this mission and purpose for the gospel, this mission and purpose to spread the name of Jesus. Like he says, as he's talking about being torn, he says, I'm torn between living and dying, basically. And he says, I desire to depart and be with Jesus, but um, which is which is better by far, but he says, it's more necessary for me to remain alive, remain in the body. And so then he says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Jesus Christ will abound more on account of me. In other words, I have this mission and my mission is to continue the gospel, to continue to encourage you in living for Jesus. He says, that's more important for me right, right now. Listen, I, I think probably the times when I get most um, 
I would say most down or most fearful about my situations or most uh, worried about the situation that I'm in is when I'm not doing anything significant for the sake of eternity. When I'm not doing anything significant for the sake of eternity. If you were to stop and just look at your life for a second and you go, am I doing anything significant for the sake of eternity? Do I live for a mission and purpose that's bigger than me or am I living for me? You see, if you live for you, um, there will always be more to live for. You will always be disappointed. If you're living for yourself and your own desires and your own wants, um, then you will always be disappointed because at the end of the day, you, you know intrinsically, I truly believe that you do, that when you die, all of that doesn't matter. But if you live with this purpose and this mission for the gospel, that there is actually um, something to live for. There's this newfound hope of what I'm doing is making a difference. Everyone wants to feel that way. You want to feel that way. You want to know that what I'm doing is making a difference. You want to, how, you want to know how to make a difference? You do whatever you do for the sake of the gospel. You go, well, how this guy, how could he make a difference? He's in prison. You're not in prison. You might be on parole today, but you're not in prison. You know, how, how could he make a difference? He made a difference exactly where he was with the people he was surrounded with for the sake of the gospel. He spoke to the prisoners. He spoke to the palace guards. He spoke to the people who were against him and he told them about the hope in Jesus. Who needs hope more than people in prison? No one. You know, and I know that for me personally, this is just, this is, it's convicting to me because I, I know that when I get more fearful and anxious, it's because I have turned, I've turned my efforts and energy away from the gospel and towards things that are less important. And if your focus and your energy in life is always on making money, providing for the family, just making ends meet or just getting a better job or, or whatever you have going on, if it is always that, then you will always always, always, always be disappointed because the the eternal significance comes back when it's for the sake of the gospel. Now you can do all those things for the sake of the gospel. You can work and earn and take care of your family and pay your bills for the sake of the gospel and everything that you do and share Jesus in your job and sharing Jesus to your kids and sharing Jesus to to the people that you meet. Now, all of a sudden, the life that you have has meaning and purpose, and you're not just living for you. You're living for more. You're living for more. Are you living for something that is eternal? Do you have, do you have this sense in your gut that I'm making an eternal impact? Or do you have just this weight inside that says, I've done nothing but live for me? I've done nothing but just kind of spin my wheels and make money and eat and do. And at the end of my life, it's not going to be worth anything. Paul says he he can be in prison and be full of joy and say, man, what what should I do? Should I I die and go be with Jesus or should I stay here and continue to serve Jesus in prison and, and tell more people about Jesus? What should I do? He says, you know what I'm going to do? He says, I'm going to continue my mission. I'm going to do whatever I can to stay alive so that I can tell more and more people about Jesus, no matter what the cost, 
even if I get tortured, even if I'm staying in this prison, even if I get beat more, I'm going to do whatever I can to continue the eternal mission of Jesus. I know that um, for you and I both, this is a, a hard thing to do. I look at a person like Paul and I go, man, I wish I had the attitude and the mission and the hope that he had. But it happens by you just making simple daily choices today. By saying, I'm going to make a difference where I am today. I'm going I'm to tell someone about Jesus today. I'm going I'm to pray for someone today. I'm going to have an attitude of hope today. Every day, I'm going to make a decision to follow and walk with Jesus. Um, what prison are you in? What chains are you in? Have you been complaining? Do you need God to come in and move and change you? Maybe you're a person who doesn't know Jesus at all. I just want to encourage you, if you've never met Jesus or known him, he's a person who can take the worst of persons, the worst of persons, and turn them into a man or a woman on a mission for him. That was Paul. And that could be you. Because his grace is sufficient for you. He, he, while you were a sinner, he died on a cross for you. And he rose again and, and came new life so that you could be promised that there's new life outside of this life. You need more. You need Jesus. Jesus is the only more in this life. If that's you, you can pray with me.